not understand the schizophrenia there. It was fun. It was fun. Awesome. <clears throat> well, shall we get started? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Jackson, come on in. We'll get started here at Sunday school. Pray for you, man. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I'm going to pray for our time, and we will, we will venture forward. Father in heaven, we thank you for this new semester of Sunday school. Um, we thank you, Lord, for um, your word, and, and we thank you for those who have gone before us, who have um, labored in incredible ways to clearly articulate it, that the church might be edified. Um, we thank you for our brother Robert and for his labors to um, prepare this for us. And we pray, um, we pray that we would be taught, ultimately that we would be taught by your Holy Spirit. And we pray that our, our minds would not just be informed, but, but our, our hearts would be inflamed with greater love for Christ, greater knowledge of our sin, and greater astonishment at what Christ did to absolve us and to justify us, um, even in our sin. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> All right, it has been a hot minute since we have had a uh, Sunday school, so does anybody remember approximately where we are in time here? If we are studying the Westminster Standards, could you name the century? Uh, let's, uh, wait, let's, you have a plus or minus 100 here, or maybe plus or minus 50 years here that I'll give you uh, grace here. Can anybody just ballpark when we are talking about. What's that? 17th century, so 1600s. That's your, that's your guess. Anybody else want to guess uh, different? So you're only, uh, if I did my plus or minus 100, then you are, you're good. 
1549 uh, was when the uh, assembly was called there. So the key thing, and this is actually going to come up today, and especially next week when Mr. Lum, right, Clint, you're up next week? Yes, is uh, that there are a lot of things that we are studying that are in here that are we're, we're getting the full benefit of the fully formed fruit of the Reformation. That this isn't the first draft with Luther or the second draft with Calvin, but that two generations after that, a lot of things have crystallized. Um, but we're just on the cusp, so some of what I have to say about today and a lot of what Mr. Lum has to say next week are things that are still sort of just a fresh branches growing out of the tree and things we agree upon today, so next week is Covenant of Works, uh, that that has a lot to do with my uh, topic today, the fall, uh, but that it is, it is very in process. And uh, this book, that if you ever get interested in what we are studying here, highly, highly recommend Robert Letham's The Westminster Assembly. Uh, I remember, I always remember a short story where I heard about this book. Uh, in St. Louis, uh, there is a guy named Dan Doriani who teaches at the seminary, very, very smart guy, very, very nerdy and brilliant, uh, has taught everything from church history to Greek to Hebrew, um, theology, all of the above. And he kind of, in St. Louis, they have the EPC, which in other places is sort of a little bit further left than PCA, um, but in St. Louis, it was, it was very uh, straight and narrow. And so he would sort of de- depend upon which church needed, called him as an assistant while he was at the seminary. He would go back and forth between being an EPC minister and a PCA minister. And so he had to get reexamined by Presbytery all the time uh, to go back, change his credentials. And one time I was there, uh, I was under care when he was coming back into the PCA and somebody asked him about his exceptions. And so we're nowhere near here, so I won't spoil or anything, but when it got to the uh, second commandment about making images, he said, I take a major exception. I think the Westminster guys uh, were totally wrong about like, you can't have any mental representations of Christ. And the guy who was examining him was like, that's not what they meant. That's not at all. You don't have to take an exception to that. And he was like, uh, no, I do. And then he pulled out his notes that he had gone through and helped Robert Letham write this book about what they were actually thinking. And he could reference somebody's who was there at the Westminster Assembly's journal notes of that. Yeah, they actually, they did mean that. So he kind of schooled him pretty good. But um, this book is uh, a lot of the behind the scenes, uh, also just a super helpful walkthrough. So if you got one book, there are a lot of good choices about books about the Westminster Standards, but this one is, if you are more of a history kind of person, I would think this would uh, appeal to you about what was going on in their minds. So today I would like to take a different uh, tact than we have taken in the past before when I was up with Westminster one months ago, uh, there was such a volume and quite a few of us have had an enormous volume of stuff to hit. Uh, Poor Mr. Haney had to just snowball us here, fire hose to the face. I have a very light one. So what I would like to do is what I normally do as a teacher is that in like math class or something, I try to see if I could get my students to create Pythagoras' theorem or whatever we're studying and feel like, oh yeah, okay, that's naturally where that would come from. So that's what I would like to try today, is that what would we say if we had the data of scripture to try to say about the fall? 
So uh, my first question for you, and we've gone through Genesis chapter 3, is what is the fall? And hopefully, I mean, if you want to look at Genesis 3, you can, uh, but we have been in there. Been Pastor Brooks has been preaching through Genesis. Raise your hand. Tell me, what is the fall? What do you think of the fall? What is that? Adam and Eve disobeyed God. It's a good point. Yep. Brought sin into the world. Previously, there had been no sin, no death, it says. And they just, so the Westminster language is, I'll say the opposite of its language here, as private persons, as just solo individuals, nothing, no further ramifications of that. No consequences. Dude and a chick screwed up. Full stop. Yeah? You all buying this? No. Oh. Come on here. I'm spoon feeding you. Throw it back. Say it back to me. Come on. All their posterity. Okay. And yeah, so that's an interesting thing here is that they had total freedom, Augustine and many theologians would since say, since that time would say, that they could have sinned or they could have not sinned. But what does it mean then that when you guys keep saying this, both you and Grant here have said sin entered the world. What do we think of, of that? Is like previously it had been outside the world and now it, you know, hopped through a teleportal and showed up and like, hey, I'm sin. And it's just over there. Off to the side. Is that what you're saying? The human will is now enslaved. Yeah. Not just that like sin is in the world, but that sin is in us. Right. And so like when we went through Genesis chapter three, uh, there were all of these consequences for Adam and Eve, painful childbirth, laboring with thorns and thistles. And in particular, for me, the most poignant one, I won't make you turn there. Uh, Genesis chapter six and chapter nine is that before the flood, when God is contemplating the flood happening, he says the inclination of man's heart is only evil all the time. And then you're like, okay, so a big good scrubbing of the earth here and a flood will take care of that. And then it says after they get off the ark, the inclination of man's heart was only evil all the time. But I will not destroy the earth again. Seed time and harvest, warm and cold, will not stop. So it didn't fix it. And this screwed up nature of, of human beings is, uh, is very much part of what has happened to us as a species. This is now not just sin is in the world, but sin is in us. So to try to uh, get a little further here into that theology here, turn with me to Romans chapter uh, 5, starting at verse 12. The Westminster Standards are going to refer a lot to some odd-numbered chapters in Romans. We'll be looking at Romans 5, later Romans 3, later Romans 7, later Romans 11. Save Romans 9 <clears throat> some other day. But uh, Romans chapter 5, uh, if we read 12 through 21, that's three paragraphs in my ESV that I see here. Can I get three volunteers to read the three paragraphs? Okay, Josh is uh, 12 through 14. Yep, Hook, uh, what you got, 15 through 17? One more? Yep, uh, Romans five eighteen through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through 
Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the gracious gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the gracious gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So what would be, I went and looked, there's not a whiteboard here. I feel very sprawl-ish here. I want a chalkboard and to start writing here. And as, you know, as a math teacher, I would love, this is very, it very much lends itself here to pros and cons, uh, minuses and pluses, uh, Adam and Christ. I hope you see there over and over again is the setup uh, that Paul here in Romans chapter 5 is contrasting Adam and Christ over and over again in each of these different ways. And so what's, what's interesting is, and we've seen this so many times as, as Pastor Brooks has preached through Genesis, is that you don't actually understand what's going on in the Old Testament unless you're looking at it through the lens of the new, is that we might be tempted, as many Jewish theologians say, is that there was just Adam. He was just a guy is that you know majority of Jews today are sort of liberal leaning theologians and they most of them uh, don't believe in original sin also because they don't want to give anything to Augustine and, and to the Christians um, but that they uh, really don't want to have this kind of what will come to be after Westminster will come to be called federal headship here so this covenant theology that's coming uh, in, the, in the next few Sunday schools. Uh, another word for that, so in the same way that in the United States it was supposed to be that you had all of these states that had uh, one embodied head who, who represented us overseas and things, federal government in that sense. Same way federal theology, we are all represented with this one head, but that now by nature, by birth, uh, what the Westminster Standards will call natural generation, we are all in Adam versus, I think it's, I counted it up one time, it's 189 times in the New Testament, we are in him, i.e. in Christ, uh, is a, a different category. So this, this idea that Adam and Christ are not just two dudes, uh, but that they are... Like, like, like um, you know how kings in, uh, in old times here, you, got, you, you read Shakespeare or whatever, and they say, you know, we are, we are not amused, you know, and that, that the we idea is, uh, is that they are the embodiment of the nation. 
that um, in, I'm thinking of Hamlet all the times where the king and the queen say, you know, Denmark enters the room and they're just talking about the king comes into the room. And, and so like he is, uh, Hamlet's uncle, the king, is Denmark. He is the embodiment of the nation. And so in the same way that we are Christians, little Christs, he is our head. He is the one that uh, represents, embodies, heads up, is the source, is the leader. All of those things, that headship kind of talk, in union with Christ kind of talk. So what are some things that are being contrasted here? Look over again, Romans 5, 12 through 21. We, we end up having to attribute a lot more to Adam than maybe we would originally think if we see these parallels with Christ. What are some things, what are, what are some of the contrasts, and, and cite your verse number where you're getting this, is that what Adam did versus what Christ did. Set up, you can just read these back to us again. What are some of these contrasts between Adam versus Christ here in Romans 5? Death and life. Death and life is that not only did, uh, you know, it said, you know, the day you eat of this fruit, you will surely die, is that not only did that then bring the undying Adam and Eve death for themselves, but death for all of us, their descendants, in the same way Christ, all kinds of cool backwardsness, by dying, brought us life for forever. Great one. Right, that this is a verdict of guilty and that Christ took the verdict of guilty for us, who are guilty, so that we could be declared innocent. Another fantastic contrast. Yeah, a gift versus a screw-up. Yeah. Nice. That's a good one. Free gift. Grace. Right, is that Adam had a clear mandate next week, the covenant of works, the arrangement that God had with Adam versus Christ, you know, as of, in appearance by the, the part of sinful humanity, had uh, obedience to all the law that he kept everything. Sin versus righteousness. righteousness. In particular, look down at 19, is that this is the part that I think we rebel against here, the part that doesn't sit well with us. ESV 19 says, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So it's not just that you have sins, that I have done sins, and I have, and you have, but that we are sinners by nature now. This is something that our fleshly side really kicks against, that we are sinful by nature now. And if you want to kick against that and you want to not say, no, I have stand on my own, uh, you don't judge me by what Adam did, that doesn't sound fair, then it's really then you're not going uh, to be made righteous in Christ in the same way that you're going to have, you have Christ's righteousness imputed to you. You have, unfortunately, Adam's sinfulness imputed to you by being one of his descendants, by being in Adam by nature now. 
So part of, I, for me, it is very much when I was Arminian, you know, not new Christian of like, no, I don't want that. Like, I want to be, stand on my own. Right. Exactly. You can't reject the corrupt nature because we have to do anything and then happily accept a free gift. Right. What, what, what needs saving here is it's not just your individual sins that you have committed, but your sinful nature that we have inherited from Adam. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 2. Here is a perfect segue. Uh, popular, popular chapter, Ephesians chapter 2. I always think of this one when somebody starts going down the Arminian path here. This is a good one. This is the, the real knockout punch here at the end of this chapter. <clears throat> or, no, not the end. The end of this paragraph. 8, 9, 10 is the goods. <clears throat> Can I get a volunteer? Maybe it's my turn. Is it to read 2, 1 through 10? Thank you. Yeah. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing; it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Very important passage. Good for arguing with Mormons, Arminians, all of the above. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful section of scripture. Um, but the, the idea here, that right at the very beginning, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. I very much remember when I was arguing with Calvinists uh, that uh, the idea that What's the, the, the joke one here? I think, I, f- I forget who Sproul is making fun of, like Finney or some, some decisionist. It's like, the devil cast one vote against you. Jesus cast one vote for you, and it's up to you to break the tie. Is that, that, was, that was some sort of uh, revivalist person's way of, of having their big tent altar calls. And like, no, <laughs> that the scripture does not leave you that option. It's not like there are these neutral people out there that could go either way. Uh, that uh, we, uh, Violet's real into uh, Nirvana lately. And uh, uh, from Unplugged, where's a lake of fire and fry, if you know that song, where the, the angels and the devils try to make them their own is one of... I know Kurt Cobain didn't write that song, but whatever it is, the lyric there is that like, it's this totally pervasive in our culture that we are neutral and that God is trying to grab his and the devil is trying to grab uh, his and there's a battle over your soul is absolutely pervasive in our culture. And this text just absolutely puts the death nail uh, out on that here is that you are a corpse by nature. Um, To me, though, that always makes it sound then like a bit of a zombie movie, is that not only are you dead, 
but you're actively dead. Uh, and so there's, there's some kind of zombie uh, vampire, I don't, I don't know, some uh, undead uh, parallel there is that people are by nature dead. Genesis 3 was not lying. God's, you know, don't eat the fruit. That was not an empty threat. Uh, but then we are still active. He still lets us live uh, 80 years or whatever in that death. And so the, the corpse lying there on the cadaver table and you're saying, this is what an altar call is, is shouting at the corpse, get up and worship, choose Christ, is that you, you can't. That is contrary to your nature now in Adam is that you are dead. You don't want the things of God and he has to regenerate you first for you to be interested in the things uh, that, that, that by grace he has raised you up, not anything that you did. It is, it is all God-initiated salvation because of how, how messed up we are in, in Adam. Uh, turn over to 1 Corinthians 15, and we will do two short parts of 1 Corinthians 15. This is the other famous one here talking about Adam and Christ. So I think in Romans 5, if we had read the whole thing, that there was the first Adam and the second Adam. I'm trying to remember verses here. I think it's where it's called the first Adam and the last Adam. So it's not like there's more than two. Um, But the idea that um, starting in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15 um, is that we have two different possible groups of humanity, and only two. Either you are in Adam or you are in Christ. Uh, Once again, are going to be the ones that are contrasted here. So let's just, can I get two volunteers for 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 23, and then someone else for 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 49. 20 to 23? And I will take uh, 42 to 49. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by, man, uh, by a man came death, by a man has uh, come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Excellent. Skipping down to 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown is dishonor. What is raised is glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. What is sown is a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And remember, when in doubt, capitalize spiritual. I disagree with ESV there, spiritual body, not ghostly, but Holy Spirit. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being, Genesis 2. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, 
we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So this, this idea that we are born into the likeness of Adam, uh, but then through the new birth, that we get, or maybe will get, do get, it's always now and not yet in, in, in theology here, is that we get, we belong to Christ, we are in Christ, but we still, in the flesh, have an Adamic nature, is that even those of us who are saved don't suddenly switch to walking six, six inches off the ground and glowing. Your, your, uh, your white robes and your, your dove wings and your golden O are, are waiting for you. They are not here yet. The truck is out for delivery. <clears throat> so this, this, again, Paul is always doing this, this contrasting nature of the first Adam, the second Adam being in Adam versus being in Christ. A uh, lot, lot of content there. Uh, turn with me. So we got it. My, I'm, I'm trying to very hard to make my chapter, which is all the bad news. I'm finding the good ways to say that, but let's let's go for the the real bad news. Uh, I'm going to read Romans chapter three, which is about only bad news. <clears throat> Romans chapter three. If you ever did the evangelism Romans roads technique here, this is the part where you like for all have sinned, kind of. Is anybody righteous? No, we're about to say. So I will read Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 26. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. And then here's this litany of psalm quotes for the most part. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law, what's the law for, comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the laws and the prophets bear witness to it, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Just because they didn't have the law doesn't mean that they weren't guilty, the non-Israelite people, for thousands of years. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So this is a very famous passage. You should keep this in mind if you're trying to have, you know, people who want to quote, is it Anne Frank? You know, it says, I still believe deep down that people are basically good. And I, every time I see that quote, I'm like, have you met people? 
you've obviously never worked in retail. Like that is just like you have not experienced human nature uh, is that, I mean, we, we have the cries of, of infants here in church. Like, did you have to teach your kid to sin? It's, it's like the laundry scoop. It comes in the box. Like this is just, this is, this is part and parcel of, of who we are now. And it's, it's horrible. Just looking over that poetic passage there of 10 through 18 is that this is who we are. And we are, we are so quick to move away from this. You know the internet thing of like how, how, many, how many lines will it be in a, in a DM back and forth before somebody gets called Hitler? Like that there's just the, the clock is ticking as soon as an online argument begins. And what are we doing when, like, Trump is literally Hitler? Like, like what, what are we doing when we, when we have one of those, those moments is that we're saying there's another kind of human being. There's, there's some other human nature that you are subhuman. Hitler was subhuman, and you're in that category. I don't have to deal with the fact that you are of the same race the same species, the same nature as me. Hitler is of the same nature as me. There, there was, there's this movie that it got memed and, and that those are funny, but there, there was a really, really great movie called uh, Downfall. Um, is that the, it was the last two months in the life of it. The memes are really, really funny, but, the, but there's this um, whole movie that was this, faced a huge backlash in Germany when it came out, this movie about the last two months in the life of Hitler, because it, I mean, he was horrible, but it like, that he hired this like 19 year old secretary right before the end. And, and so she had, you know, he's a nice vegan painter, history teacher, um, who, who, who was very nice to his dogs. Like she had, she had only seen him as just an average older boss guy. She, she did not see all the, the horribleness and so uh, it just, I mean, you, you did get some of the horribleness in that movie, but it really was vilified in the German press when it came out for making Hitler a person. Is that he got up every morning and looked in the mirror and said, I'm doing the right thing. Nobody looks in the mirror and twirls their mustache and says, let me do evil today. And yet... You can be Stalin, you can be Pol Pot, you can be Hitler and, and, and do those things. Kill millions of people, lie, cheat, steal, rape, pillage. All the horribleness in the world is done by people like us. So this, this how bad are we is by nature is what is on display here. And Christians should be the first to admit this because, I mean, and, and honestly, I, I feel great sympathy for non-Christians who don't want to admit this. Why would you admit this when you don't believe there's any cure? Stick your head in the sand and just pretend, oh, blah, 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 like this is not, I don't, people aren't that bad if there's no hope, if there's no, so, so sometimes I feel like when in evangelism, you have to sort of give the bad news. People know the bad news. They just don't want to face it. And, and that, you can face the bad news when you have the good news. So it is, it is quite encouraging, it should be, to be able to face all this bad stuff. Uh, last section here, Romans chapter 7. Turn a couple pages to Romans chapter 7, 
verses 13 through 25 is two paragraphs, very famously argued over uh, how to interpret this passage. I am not going to mince words. I am, I am totally, there is one right way to read this, and that is it. So uh, come see me afterwards if you disagree. Um, <clears throat> but uh, so um, I will read 13 through 20. And um, can I get a volunteer to read 21 to 25? Yeah, okay, so I'll start us off. Romans chapter 7, I'm reading 13 through 20, uh, and then 21 through 25. Did that which is good, talk about the law, uh, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual. There's that capital S again. Uh, But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. What Now, if I do what I do not want... I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good is in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So I certainly admit that this is a dangerous passage here, and um, I don't think any of us have, uh, it was an old thing from like the 70s or something, but if your kid says to you, I didn't do it, the devil made me do it, was this old TV show or something, I, I hadn't seen it, but that this, there's a real danger here, it's like, oh, I didn't sin, no, my sin nature did that, not me, I get a pass, uh, is certainly a danger uh, in this. But I think it is very important that we recognize that we still have a sin nature and that even post-salvation, post-acceptance of Christ, becoming a follower of Christ, those of you young kids who were born into Christian families still have this struggle, still have an old man that you have to do battle with, as Paul says elsewhere. That this is, I think, very important that we, we tell our kids and tell ourselves this is the nature of the Christian life, that we are still going to have struggle. We need to fight, uh, but we need to say, who am I? I'm not this, in, in, in the sense that the future, the ultimate end, tells you who you are. That glorious being post-resurrection, that's the real Robert Murphy. I would, I would be awestruck beyond words to see him because I'm so little like him. But, but that it is, it, is, 
it is the hope to say that I, my life is hidden with Christ and when he appears, I will be made like him. And there is some continuity. It's not like post-resurrection, I will be just completely rebooted, retconned into the, you know, Robert Marshall Murphy 2.0. That there, there is some connection between me and that that is the ultimate me, the real me. And you can go too far with this and you can, you can go, you can say stupid things. But that to really identify who is I, who, who is the real ego, the self here, is that resurrected, sinless, post-resurrection, uh, end times, Robert, is the real me. And that I am being transformed from one degree of glory to the next into him. Not soon enough. <clears throat> Lastly, one verse. One verse is going to be... Uh, quite uh, startling if you really think about it, especially if you just sort of let it stand on its own. Romans chapter 11, verse 32. One verse that uh, really gets to be quite deep if you you actually just read it here. Romans chapter 11, verse 32 says, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. How could the fall have happened? Could God have prevented it? Didn't God see it coming? And couldn't he have taken steps to prevent it from happening? Got to tread very carefully here as I walk around uh, this one here. But, and you you know that the the typical way that theologians have this parsed out is that we talk about the two wills of God. You're reading the Ten Commandments and you say, thou shalt not murder is the will of God. Then you go out to around Goodlettsville and, and murder happens. So is the will of God being thwarted? Is God frustrated and, and not and, and impotently unable to accomplish what he wants? Well, no, that there is whatever comes to pass, God is sovereign over all and there is not a rogue molecule in the universe. But also he has a decreed will about that, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That one day what God says how it ought to happen and what actually does happen will be the same. But that now those are two different things, but still in two different senses, the will of God. So the Westminster divines do cite in their proof text at the bottom of the verses of the sections, 1 Corinthians, excuse me, Romans chapter 11, verse 32, as an example of uh, God having, in some certain particular sense, be very careful, decreed the fall. All right, with that here, last five minutes here, we're going to speed run um, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Did everybody get a handout there? And uh, we're going to read the six sections there, but I feel like you don't know it yet, but we have built all these things on our own, having read from Scripture there. So, uh, Charlton, do you have that there? The the paper. Yeah. Yeah. Will you read one, Naomi? Two, Clint? Three? You don't have the handout. Uh, Brooks, do you have the handout? Okay, so uh, four, uh, five uh, from Josh, and does a boomer shine have a handout? Okay, hook, uh, you get six. Okay, Charlie. 
Our first parents were led astray by the cunning temptation of Satan and sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. It pleased God to allow them to sin because in his wisdom and holiness, he planned to order their sin to his own glory. By this sin, they felt their original righteousness and fellowship with God, so became dead in sin and completely polluted in all their faculties and parts of body and soul. Since they were the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed and the same death in sin corrupted the Four. This original corruption completely disciplines, incapacitates, and turns us away from every good, while it completely inclines us to every evil. From it proceed all actualized sins. During life on earth, this corrupt nature remains in those who are regenerated, and although it is hardened and deadened in Christ, yet it and all its impulses are truly and properly. Every sin, both original and actual, transgression and transgresses the righteous law of God and brings guilt and sin. Every sinner is consequently subjected to the wrath of God, the curse of the law, and death, with all the resultant miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. So that is Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter six, very much to be found in Romans three, five, seven. Ephesians chapter 2, there are more proof texts there. Mainly the one that I skipped was all the Genesis stuff because we've heard that all so recently. I would say we all love uh, C.S. Lewis here and that the way you, uh, even the way we heard there, a couple of different versions of, of 6.2 from the Westminster Confession, does sound like they were saying we are all as bad as we could be, which is not what they intended. Some of those words have changed definition over the last 500 years. And that C.S. Lewis rejected a lot of Calvinism while embracing it in a more functional, actual kind of way. But in name, he rejected a lot of it because he said, who could believe in total depravity when people aren't totally screwed up? That's hell, where people are as bad as they could be. And really, the word totally, total, and back then, would be closer to our word systemic now, is that we are systemically broken in every aspect of our being including, I would say, most importantly, our will, our volition, our choices. It's not like you can decide good or evil uh, because that part of you is unfallen. That part of you is messed up too. So when you read these things like in, in 6.2 there, uh, is that you know, wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of body and soul, is that that's talking about each part of us is broken. But to different people, to different extents. This is why we have so much that we can learn from non-Christians is that they can be less screwed up in some part than we are, than even we all are together as a group. One non-Christian could be less fallen in that respect, and there's still much to learn. It's all God's truth. All right, let us stand and uh, pray, and that will conclude uh, our Sunday school time through Westminster Confession, chapter 6. Let, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we have uh, the ultimate in good news, that we are so bad that it takes the death of the Son of God to make us right, but that we are so loved that you joyfully and gladly 
came and were incarnate and took up your cross to win us back to yourselves. Help us to be uh, brave and courageous to be able to face the true state of our nature, of how fallen uh, we are, how broken and messed up we are. Let us be the uh, quick to confess and uh, slow to defend ourselves. Thank you that uh, in a few minutes we can confess our sins and still be welcomed into uh, your presence, that all of these ugly things about us are known to you and we are still loved even though we are fully known for all of our sinfulness. Thank you for your sinless son, Jesus Christ, uh, the death he died on our behalf to win us back into your family. Thank you for the second Adam, that we get a new nature and are born again and will have a new likeness uh, like Christ in the world to come. We pray that you would continue to sanctify us this week through your word and through your sacraments in the coming hour. Uh, We praise and bless you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. Romans 5. Yeah. 12. It's a spicy boy, isn't it? 12. Um, Adam being a type. Yeah. The first time I actually had this question, I was like, oh, wait. Is he referring to before the fall or after? When he says Adam was a type. Because I always like whenever I think about like, a type of Christ, I always like, we love to separate that out. Yeah. And I think that um, because they're all negative, I would say, given your choice there, I would say after is that it is spread to us, and so it's like a negative. It's like a, um, you ever play uh, so then video we, games with like there's the red-eyed Nega uh, Scott Pilgrim yeah, there? Yeah. It's like that's, he's Nega Christ. He's, he's the negative version, so, the anti-Christ. Okay, why does he call him a type then? So type is literally like when you have a stamp and you press it into wax or whatever like that, is that that's the, the same word can mean either the stamp or the impression left, the, the, the okay. negative. But then we all are a type. No, that. is that you don't have the ability to damn a race. Is that okay. in the same, that Christ was, uh, Adam was special in that he was the figurehead, the representative, the king okay. of well, humanity, and that his sin damned all of us. Okay. And that that power is something that you and I don't have as individual okay, sinners. Maybe what it is, is. But you do have a little bit. I mean, like, you know, your kids take after your sinfulness. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, and it's probably just because in my mind, I'm just like racing through. I'm like, I don't remember. The scripture does it. Does scripture mention any other person as a type of Christ? Because I've heard other preachers be like, yeah, like Job was a type or Joshua was a type or, yeah. you know, like talking about like foreshadowing, like, you know, of Christ, but using I would, that word. Um, I, I feel like I would need to look up the word type, but I remember being very much struck that the Greek uses the word type, tupos, um, both for like the stamp and the negative Right, like if you have a okay. mold, it's like like I did a mold oh. of my face one right, time. Yeah. It's the negative of right. my face, and then the thing like I packed clay into it, that would be the same as my face. Right. The same tupos can mean both the thing that's the same shape as you, and then the Your photo species. negative of that, the opposite okay. contour. Okay. So it can be both a negative or a positive example, and like First Corinthians oh. ten says, the whole Old Testament is for our examples of what not to do. Right. Mostly. It's mostly, mostly negative yeah. examples is that they were sinners screwed up and stupid. Yeah. So oh. right. it's, it, 